the fact-checking organization covers, uh, if not equally, but at least fairly, each political party or you know candidate uh, with their coverage. And it doesn't mean that they need to have a false balance in their verdicts, but at least uh, what we have been asking from our assessors is that the organizations in our network, if they want to be certified if, and if they want to be in the network, stay in the network, they have to have a fair selection process and be able to communicate that with their readers so anyone can have this clear idea why they fact-check a particular claim or why they fact-check a particular story and whether there is any weight on one of those issues or claims more than others. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 26, 2020. Welcome to another episode of the podcast's Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Baibars Orsek, the director of the International Fact-Checking Network at the Pointer Institute. Fact-checking has become newly prominent in recent years as fact-checkers work to counter surges of online disinformation and misinformation. And it's more important than ever right now in the middle of a pandemic, when incorrect information circulating online has immediate consequences for people's health. Bybars has been on the front lines of fact-checking in recent years. We spoke to him about the IFCN's Fact-Checkers Code of Principles, Facebook's partnership with fact-checkers for content shared on their platforms, and why fact-checking is important right now. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 526, by Bars Orsek on everything you ever wanted to know about fact-checking. Bye, Bars. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, you're the director of the International Fact-Checking Network at the Pointer Institute. Let's start with something really basic. What is the IFCN? Sure. Um, the IFCN is the International Fact-Checking Network, as you have perfectly um, summarized. It's a unit within the Pointer Institute, and it was set up in late 2015 to address the rise of fact-checking organizations around the world. And so far, it has been working with fact-checkers, uh, researchers, um, and other stakeholders in the field to enhance the practice of fact-checking for a more reliable um, and healthy public discourse. And so what's your role with the IFCN? Um, I am the director of the network, and I was hired back in um, last February um, after working five years as a fact-checker in Turkey. Um, I was hired by the Pointer Institute to lead the network after our founding director, uh, Alexios Manzalis, stepped down um, in late 2018. Um, so uh, my duty is basically to support a fact-checking ecosystem and uh, provide more capacity and resources to the organizations in our network and help new organizations to start fact-checking uh, and join this movement. So what exactly um, does that involve? Like, maybe get a little bit more specific. What kind of resources and things do you give to the uh, fact checkers in your network? Sure. Uh, we are actually um, acting as an umbrella organization for world's nonpartisan fact checkers. And I think it's fair to say that even the, um, the early uh, days of the network goes back to um, 2013, 2014, when a group of fact-checkers decided to meet for the first time in London to share best practices, which eventually turned to the Global Fact Conferences. 
So uh, for the um, last six years, the fact-checking community has been meeting in different parts of the world. And since the launch of the IFCN in 2015, the meetings were started to call as the Global Fact Conferences. And every year we hold those conferences uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, the first two ones were held in London. Uh, the third one was held in Buenos Aires. And the fourth and fifth ones were held in Madrid and Rome. And the last year I had the opportunity to organize uh, the sixth conference in Cape Town, South Africa. And hopefully this year we will be meeting again in also Norway, allowing the, you know, this COVID-19 and the travel restrictions, uh, the travel concerns people have. Um, and in addition to our global fact conferences, we uh, run the Code of Principles which is basically uh, the process that we certify fact-checking organizations as our verified signatories. And so far in our network, more than 90 organizations have been certified as uh, verified signature to IFCN, uh, showing that they adhere to higher standards in fact-checking, applying higher standards in accountability, in transparency, and uh, providing um, better examples in um, having a methodology uh, on their day-to-day fact-checking work. So those two can be categorized as like the backbones of our uh, work at the IFCN. Uh, but on the other hand, we also do provide in-person online trainings. Uh, just last year, we were in 12 different countries to organize in-person trainings mostly focusing on helping new organizations to start fact-checking. And basically, the whole mandate that we have is to support the organization uh, with uh, trainings, networking, conferences, best practices with our core principles, and a number of you know, grants uh, to support the innovative ideas. Uh, but probably, I mean, last but not the least, we also act as an advocacy organization when it comes to more fact checks and authoritative sources on platforms and more um, transparent coverage on the impact of fact checking in different platforms and make sure uh, the fact checking provides the accurate information to the users that they desperately need, especially in you know, such important times that we are going through. So that's fantastic, because I'd like to ask you just a little bit more about the code of principles that you mentioned, which, as you said, really does seem to be a backbone of the work that you do. So that is five principles that seem to be uh, fairly high-level principles of good practice for fact-checkers. Could you maybe describe sort of what that document is and what the process was for drafting that? Sure. Um, the Code of Principles was uh, announced in late two th- early 2016 uh, when we had experienced a rise of new fact-checking organizations. Understandably, right before the U.S. elections uh, and after that, it became the fact-checking became a hot topic in the world. And we had experienced so many new organizations starting to uh, fact-check on a regular basis, either as a standalone organization or part of larger media houses, the International Factoring Network tried to step in and promote that code of principles, which actually followed by um, a set of criteria that outlines the expectations and the responsibilities of the organizations uh, to follow. Um, and even though we realize that it's not a ceiling when it comes to high standards, uh, we at least hope that it's been serving 
to the community as a floor for better fact-checking and better journalism in general. That's great. I mean, one of the things I'm curious about is you you said the, the code was launched in uh, September 2016. There's been a surge of interest in fact-checking and in fact-checking organizations. This is a pretty basic question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Like, why now, <laughs> right? Like, why is it that, that right now fact-checking has this new prominence and this new importance? Right. So I guess it's more about like, I think it was an accumulation of the interest so far we already had seen starting in early 2000s. But I think the US elections in 2016 really brought the concept of fake news and misinformation to us more uh, prominently. Um, so I think it's not surprising. It wasn't surprising to see more organizations starting this as a practice um, as a niche or as a you know separate practice in their journalistic activities to provide more evidence-based discourse in um, their local settings. You might find that interesting, but it's not that the U.S. has U.S. had the majority of new organizations in 2016. So when we do our annual survey in our community, we're able to see that the rise in late 2016 or beyond uh, was mostly coming from uh, countries out of the U.S. Um, so therefore, I think it's, uh, it makes sense to see that the media atmosphere in so many countries around the world were so concentrated and the polarization was also on the rise, uh, not only in the U.S., but in Europe, in Asia, in um, the Middle East and North Africa, polarization most likely you know, encouraged uh, new organizations to start fact-checking. Uh, because they have been able to at least promote this new concept in such a polarized media atmosphere and focus on more evidence-based discourse rather than more values-based uh, polarizing discourse in their local things. So I think that was like the key reason why we have been able to see more factoring organizations using this practice to intervene to their media atmospheres with this new um, less polarizing, at least in theory, less polarizing effort to provide more reliable information. And so in this environment that, as you say, is is so highly polarized, I'm interested in your thoughts about how fact-checkers ensure nonpartisanship, right? I mean, there, there have been a lot of criticisms on the right that, you know, fact-checking might be biased in, in one direction or another. I'd, I'd love to hear your response to that and just your general thoughts on how fact-checkers can sort of ensure trust that their fact-checks are accurate and not affected by politics. So um, nonpartisanship has been, again, at the center of our core of principles just to help the fact-checking organizations or the fact-checking movement to lead the efforts in restoring trust in the media. Therefore, we had and we still have a big emphasis on ensuring the nonpartisanship in their body of work, in their fact-checks, in their uh, public communications, so uh, readers wouldn't be hesitant to consume those fact-checks. So that was the, the whole idea. If fact-checking organizations can play a role, can be the front-runner in the struggle to restore the trust in media, that can only be done if they act as a nonpartisan organization. So it is totally normal to think that 
journalists, fact-checkers working in those organizations might have different political affiliations, different political beliefs. Uh, but when it comes to their work, especially when it comes to their methodology that they do their fact-checks, they need to provide that they don't have a selection bias. They don't focus on one party or one political group more than other. So eventually, the readers can see that the fact-checking organization covers uh, if not equally, but at least fairly, each political party or you know candidate uh, with their coverage. And it doesn't mean that they need to have a false balance in their verdicts, but at least uh, what we have been asking from our assessors is that the organizations in our network, if they want to be certified if, and if they want to be in the network, stay in the network, they have to have a fair selection process and be able to communicate that with their readers so anyone can have this clear idea why they fact-check a particular claim or why they fact-check a particular story and whether there is any weight on one of those issues or claims more than others. The process for certification is really interesting. I was just wondering, do you have many people that apply for certification that don't get certified? We do. We do. Every year we also come up with those, you know, figures. And for the first time of our, you know, um, the history of the IFCN, we just decided last year to disclose a number of organizations that were rejected by the IFCN. Uh, in the past, we were not doing that to basically protect some of the organizations that they were not able to get certified. Because uh, in many cases, the reason why those organizations are not certified can be due to their concerns about transparency, especially in you know countries where you don't have freedom of speech and freedom of media granted. Um, so we were not disclosing the number of organizations rejected uh, annually, but starting from this year, we will be uh, doing that annually. Um, and one of the reasons that we did not do that in the past was also related to the challenge that we always have had, which is finding a structure, finding a methodology which can apply to organizations more than 50 different countries. Um, because the um, neither the legal or the political structure in those you know 50 plus countries are similar. So in some cases, we had to not to disclose those organizations who were not uh, certified. So starting from this year, we will be um, announcing them. But just uh, you know, in a ballpark estimate over the three over the last three years, I can comfortably say that it is more than twenty five percent of the applications that ended up uh, with a rejection. Fascinating. So you mentioned that that certification process is what allows the fact checkers to be part of the partnership that the IFCN has with Facebook. Um, so Facebook announced in 2017, I believe it was, that being a signatory to that code was necessary to be a third party fact checker for its platforms. Are you able to give us a little bit of background behind how that came about? Sure. Um, it was late 2016 when the advisory board of the IFCN which at the time I was also part of that advisory board uh, in my previous capacity as the founder of fact-checking organization in Turkey, uh, we came up with the idea to um, send an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg and address the misinformation problem on Facebook. And Facebook actually acted immediately uh, by announcing the third-party fact-checking program 
and um, using IFCN's uh, certification as a necessary but not a sufficient criteria to onboard their new partners. So, so far, uh, Facebook has been working with more than 45 different organizations, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, uh, in their third-party fact-checking program. And even though all of them are um, part of our network as our verified signatures, not all of our verified signatures uh, are working with Facebook. So Facebook, uh, at the end of the day, has the ability and the whole you know, room to make decisions whom they want to work uh, with in this partnership. And so how, how is it going so far? You guys have now been doing this for a couple of years. I, I think it's um, one of the most um, covered uh, partnerships when it comes to fighting against misinformation uh, due to the number of problems that Facebook has been having when it, when it comes to data privacy, uh, lack of transparency in the impact of the program and other aspects of their uh, work. But I think it's fair to say that the program needs uh, credit, at least in the sense that uh, it allows fact checkers to put input, uh, provide input uh, to the company so they can enforce certain treatments, uh, such as reducing the reach of the content or you know, demonetizing uh, certain repeat offender publishers. So I think the gains have been more than, you know, it has been covered in the media as negatively. So um, I think that's been an important um, experiment and effort to uh, bring together tech companies and fact checkers in a way to help uh, users to get more reliable information and at least get some warnings uh, before they choose to interact or uh, engage with any particular content flagged uh, as misinformation by the partners. So I think that's good. And that doesn't mean that there is no room for improvement. There obviously uh, is a room for improvement, especially on the transparency and the communication part of the program, uh, because we have been advocating uh, constantly that Facebook should be more transparent about the reach of the, uh, the fact checks, uh, the reach of the misinformation before they were fact checked. So how fact checking helps users to get uh, better informed. I think we need to know more about that uh, from Facebook. And additionally, I think we also have been having certain areas of improvement where uh, the communication can be uh, more inclusive in terms of getting more input from researchers, getting more input from fact checkers, and making those decisions in the policy uh, about the political speech, the opinion, the satire uh, could have been defined in a more uh, structured way and with less room for interpretation in different countries. Because right now the program is active in more than 50 different languages in more than 50 different countries. So I think we can also have uh, more uh, improvements on those areas as well. You said that it's one of the most covered partnerships. What other partnerships do you have? And is there any sign that other platforms are looking to engage in some sort of partnership similar to the one with Facebook? Or are they sort of just sitting back and watching at the moment and, and evaluating their options? Um, I, I think that, ans that question can be answered in two different ways for different companies, different platforms. But I'm not feeling comfortable in you know, making a comment on that because at this point, at least regarding this 
this you know problem that we have, especially about this COVID nineteen related misinformation. I'm more than happy to see that more and more uh, the platforms are taking actions in terms of you know working with fact checkers. So that's very promising. Uh, but historically, I think uh, the other companies might, especially um, Twitter, in that sense, uh, could have been more active in. Um, maybe not necessarily following the same path, but at least exploring some um, alternatives where they could work with more um, fact-checkers to surface more authoritative sources on their platform. Uh, because when we all talk, when we talk about misinformation, it's very likely that people are focusing on Facebook, which makes total sense in many ways. But I think we sometimes underestimate the role of other companies uh, role in disseminating misinformation, and I think um, there are some areas where they can um, get some, you know, advices in terms of building a more, you know, specific program for their platforms. Um, on the other hand, Google has been also very collaborative with fact-checking organizations um, over the last couple of years. Um, their search uh, and news products have. Teams have products tailored to needs of fact checkers, and they've also been constantly uh, working to improve certain tech infrastructure so fact checkers can communicate their content with platforms much more efficiently. Uh, I think it's a work in progress for all of those companies, all of those platforms. Uh, and maybe more importantly, I think it's also important to say that um, the policies in terms of their attitudes towards misinformation should also be considered separately from the partnership. For example, Pinterest, let's say, doesn't have any formal partnership with fact checkers, but the policy that they have against anti-vaccination and right now the COVID-19 and you know empowering their users with more reliable information coming from more authoritative sources, I think needs to be also credited here. So they don't necessarily need to work with fact checkers in order to make their platforms more accurate information-driven mediums for everyone. So you you mentioned um, fact-checking in response to uh, social media content on, on COVID-19. I'm curious, just for, for your thoughts on that, um, it does seem like there's been a, you know, a surge of dis and misinformation, as well as a really kind of aggressive content moderation on multiple platforms. I'd just love to hear your thoughts about that. I think what we have been seeing lately is a totally different way of thinking uh, from platforms. I think we are we have passed this you know point where platforms were more able to um, use or argue that they don't have so much responsibility in this you know in the spread of misinformation. But right now, I think with the COVID nineteen and more about especially health related misinformation they have all agreed that they need to do more. Um, so I think this might be the only silver lining that we might have during this um, outbreak, uh, because day by day, I happen to observe that platforms are taking more um, measures and actions to not allow anyone that has the intention to spread misinformation or gain profits by, you know, true hoaxes, uh, conspiracy theories or fake medicine, stuff like that. So I think we are going to be in a better uh, era when it comes to 
recognizing platforms' responsibilities. So that's a gain that I think we need to, you know, uh, build on and make sure this is not only uh, limited to such a globally uh, recognized outbreak, but also in cases where the local communities might be affected while the rest of the world may not give that attention as they have right now. I'll take any silver lining I can get. That um, I really hope that that's right, that this is a, an impetus for greater attention for other situations as well. I'd like to ask you about a study that's getting a lot of coverage at the moment um, that's recently being published um, that says that fact-checking can have an implied truth effect. Um, so the the paper talks about when social media platforms stick a label on posts that, that says that this uh, story has been rated false by a third-party fact-checker. Uh, there's some evidence that this can make people think that other stories that don't have that label are more true, whether or not they've actually been fact-checked. I was wondering if you could just maybe talk a little bit about what your reaction is to that study, given it's been getting so much coverage. Sure. Um, for First of all, I am more than happy to see that fact-checking is getting studied in more quantitative way than it, it was used to cover in more qualitative way. So I think we came to a point where everybody agrees that fact-checking has the impact. And now we are worried about whether the implied truth effect will be larger than the impact of fact-checking itself. So I think that's a progress that also we really need to take and, you know, uh, make sure we keep studying misinformation in this uh, quantitative way. So I really appreciate that. Uh, but the only observation, though, the major absor- uh, concern that I have is actually is twofold. One, I think there's still this tendency in uh, some academic circles to use fact-checking as a tool to, um, I don't want to say attack, but I guess like pressure is better term here, to pressure uh, tech companies uh, for their other non-fact-checking related problems. So that's my uh, first concern, my first reservation about that particular study. And secondly, about the suggestions there, I don't think um, crowdsourcing will ever be able to cover what professional fact-checking has been able to cover, even with its scalability problems. I agree that fact-checkers are not growing on trees, and we will always need additional resources to train more fact-checkers and allow uh, them or help them to be more in a position to provide more input so the platforms can act accordingly. Uh, But at the end of the day, this is journalism, and I think journalism needs to be done professionally. There have been some efforts to crowdsource fact-checking and the wisdom of the crowd, even though it sounds really intriguing, intriguing um, I think it has some limitations, especially about the, the other thing of the work itself and whether it would be sacrificed into polarization and we won't be able to have an objective and evidence-based Uh, verdict on any given particular uh, piece of potential misinformation. So uh, having said those, um, I also think that it's not fair to undermine the role of fact-checking just because we think it's not scalable enough. Uh, So I will just raise this question, which would be, should we also stop doing investigative reporting? Because if not, then it will be easier for um, authoritarian leaders in their countries to commit, uh, keep committing crimes 
because people will not be able to uh, raise their voices because there's no investigative reporting. Uh, so I think the question is more uh, universal when, when it comes to the impact of fact-checking, impact of journalism. Um, I think the best that we can do is uh, supporting more fact-checking organizations, supporting newsrooms to start their own fact-checking units, dedicate more resources in this, you know, time-consuming practice and pressuring the platforms in the right way so they can empower more newsrooms in this way and um, have people to share, the users to share their feedback, whether they find those uh, findings reliable or not. So you hint there at a, a kind of fact-checking and journalism that there there's a little bit of a comparison that can be drawn, although, of course, they are different in terms of both methodology and what role they play. Can you just talk about that a little more? How do you see fact-checking interacting with journalism? Sure. Um, for full transparency, uh, I come from a political fact-checking background. Uh, the organization that I started back in Turkey in 2014 uh, was started as an organization that would primarily and exclusively fact-check political claims and claims of public interest in Turkey. And, you know, there's probably no need to say that. It's not necessary to say that, but Turkey is not a country where you have a number of um, newsrooms, organizations, I mean, journalistic organizations that do this intensive uh, reporting work uh, where you cross those official claims with primary and secondary resources and then provide the public with a evidence-based outcome, whether they're, you know, elected officials were telling them the truth or not. So my understanding of fact-checking is not limited to political fact-checking per se, but I highly value the role of political fact-checking and strongly believe that there are so many common grounds between the traditional journalism and fact-checking when it comes to help people to hold their people uh, hold the power of their societies accountable so that's aside i also think that and you know strongly experience that this new not recent but like you know for the last couple of years this growing uh, concept of verification especially followed by uh, more open source intelligence tools based reporting is turning into a new form of journalism, like the work you know being done by Bellingcat, the others. I'm fine. I'm having some hard time to not to call them as journalists anymore because like seeing them using those you know tools and methodology to investigate the story and you know come up with such amazing you know stories are actually um a big journalism if you ask me so i think growingly we are seeing more and more overlaps between the political fact checking uh, between the verification the OSINT based you know uh debunking practice and the uh journalism that we know so i'm willing to see that's being more covered as you know, we have more progress in embedding more journalistic uh, skills on our fact-checking work in our new, you know, verification work. I mean, I mean, because in political fact-checking, I think we already have those skills in a way that is becoming to recognize as a part of a journalism, uh, part of journalism. 
You mentioned earlier that there's been this moves in some place towards uh, crowdsourcing fact-checking and that you're concerned about it. Something I think that maybe would be really helpful for our listeners and for me as well, it would be great if you could sort of walk through how fact-checking actually works and what makes it different from just, say, like me spending some time on Google and uh, trying to work out whether something's true or not. Like what do fa- what is the method of fact-checking that makes it special? Absolutely. So. If I want to play the devil's advocate, I can, you know, easily sell you or the, you know, anyone in this field that, you know, a newsroom working with, you know, 20, 30 different, you know, people uh, with certain expertise can also be considered as crowdsourced newsroom, right? Because then you have a group of people who has uh, been playing a role in the fact-checking world and the, in the, you know, the newsroom workflows. Uh, but when I say crowdsourcing might be problematic, I, I'm more thinking about like a more Wikipedia kind of crowdsourcing where you don't have an editorial oversight on the work that will be published as a fact check at the end of the workflow. But there are some progress that I think needs to be also uh, recognized, which is like this, you know, uh, the perfect example is science feedback. Um, Science Feedback is a crowdsourced fact-checking organization that works with more than 30 PhD holders in health and climate-related studies. And anytime that they uh, are doing a fact-check, they get those feedbacks from uh, scientists. Uh, But the difference uh, between them and this, you know, the other Wikipedia form of crowdsourced fact-checking is that they work with people who they have already vetted. So um, they accept only PhD holder scientists to their pool of um, experts, and they rely on their feedbacks and their fact checks. So that's closer to the traditional way of newsrooms rather than a crowdsourced you know, uh, newsroom. But at the end of the day, they do that in a crowdsourced way. But the biggest difference there is, I guess, they have the editorial control, uh, editorial supervision over those you know, scientists, and they vet those scientists before they join the pool. It's not that anyone who has access to Google or you know, to the World Wide Web has the ability to uh, play the same amount of role in a fact check where actually you need uh, some sort of technical or, you know, context-based expertise every single time. So is it that reliance on expertise that can sometimes mean that fact-checking takes a little longer? Like one of the things you see that fact-checkers get criticized for, or I guess platform reliance on fact-checking gets criticized for, um, is that it can sometimes take a little while to get a label stuck on a story. Um, And in the meantime, obviously, in the age of virality, stories go viral and they get lots of uh, views and things. So is it that particular, like, it's the specialty of of fact-checking that actually makes it also more time-consuming? Um. Uh, yes, I mean definitely, um, but I think that's not something that we should be, uh, if you don't mind, ashamed of because um, I think that also shows the quality of the work that needs to be also provided there. So I think the community and the you know the platforms are also coming to this understanding that there are some things that doesn't need that sort of expertise. 
uh, which would be just like to see whether a headline is misleading or a photo is used in another context in the past. I mean, those basic efforts can be outsourced. I mean, uh, I can agree to that. And there are some efforts by Facebook, for example, in the form of this community reviewers that they are working with uh, people, but with a set of training, doing some of those preliminary fact-checking work before the content reaches, reaches to fact-checkers. I'm fine with that. And I think that also can be related to this you know, conversation that we have, have about uh, automated fact-checking. Uh, because it's been like the question of the you know the decade whether we will be able to see um, the machines will do the fact checking work for us would there be any need for you know journalists fact checkers to do the work but I think we also have to uh, we also have this you know common understanding right now that there will be always a need for a human being for a journalist for a fact checker to provide context to whatever is being you know fact checked. Because in many, uh, in you know, ninety-five, maybe more percent of the time, uh, it's about how you build that relationship between the claim, between the uh, whether it's a multimedia or the story, and the context. So making that you know uh, assessment and providing that expertise would be for long time uh, will be at the uh, core of the fact-checking work. And we will need experts who are not only educated on that, but also being able to hold accountable for the work that they do. Uh, because what if we don't? We, what if we need to, you know, uh, make a correction? How we do that? And would the readers be interested in seeing who is behind the fact-checking organization? Uh, would they be interested in seeing? Uh, whether they have a nonpartisanship stance uh, over the course of their publishing period. Uh, I think in order to answer those questions, we will always need professional fact-checking, even though we also need to recognize that we as the fact-checkers need to come up with tools uh, that can help us to automate some of our workflow and fasten the process of uh, publishing our content and helping people to get warnings if necessary. Yeah, I I share your skepticism that we'll ever get to a day where the machines can define truth for us. But I guess just one little sort of follow-up on that then, because given the importance of context, are there any kinds of claims um, that just can't be fact-checked? Like, are there any stories where a fact-checker will be trying to fact-check it one way or another and they just can't? Is that something that, is that a limitation at all? Well, I mean, the, the, not the limitation, but I mean the preference that we um, are trying to promote in the community. I think also there is a common understanding on that one as well. Uh, the fact checkers shouldn't be fact checking opinions. Uh, fact checking uh, shouldn't be about telling people whether they are their thoughts are right or wrong. I mean, thoughts, uh, opinions are subjective, and I think they shouldn't be uh, subject of a fact check unless the facts in those opinions are misleading people. Um, so instead of making that limitation, I will suggest we um, try to uh, see as a preference and a priority uh, for fact-checkers not to fact-check an opinion, and it's basically you know, methodologically impossible to fact-check an opinion, 
but to make sure the figures, the facts, the uh, the statistics, the numbers, what have you, are accurate, so they are not misleading the readers or the voters or the people who were being you know affected by that particular claim or the story. And obviously, we cannot you know uh, predict the future, so you know fact checking uh shouldn't be about you know making sure those predictions are you know accurate or not uh, but as long as we stick to the facts that are at the heart of the public discourse i think uh we will be you know playing our um, role to help um, users to you know sort fiction from truth so we're just about out of time, but before we go, I want to ask you a, a big picture question. In your view, what's the biggest thing that fact checkers or platforms partnering with fact checking organizations should work on over the next year? The first panel that we had in Last Global Fact in Cape Town, uh, South Africa, was about health-related fact checking. And it was, I mean, and almost like a year before uh, we are now having this COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, I'm just giving this reference. If anyone, you know, will be listening to spot this podcast a few years later from now on. Um, and I think the community has this common understanding that we need to allocate more resources to health-related misinformation to fight against the health-related misinformation and empower our um, readers, our users, our followers with uh, skills and the tips so they can act as a fact-checker when they face against the misinformation, especially on health-related issues. Because this, this can be um, fatal. Uh, misinformation can really, and it actually you know, causes real-life harm. Just a couple of days ago in Iran, 70 people died because they um, consumed uh, ethyl alcohol uh, because they thought it would cure coronavirus. Um, so misinformation, and that was, uh, you, know, uh, you know, misinformation spreading in uh, Telegram and other platforms in Iran. And the examples can be replicated in every part of the world. So I think the fact checkers should be more educative, educating about how ordinary people can be their own fact checkers whenever they come up with a misinformation that would affect their uh, health and their lives. And it's also very you know, promising to see that more and more fact-checking organizations are investing in media literacy. As a part of our international fact-checking efforts, uh, we last year we have published, in 2019, we have published a database of uh, media literacy activities uh, done by fact-checking organizations, and we are updating that in two weeks for the fourth uh, International Fact-Checking Day. Uh, we will celebrate this April. Um, so more uh, training and engagement with ordinary people on the basics of misinformation and how people can prevent them will be uh, at the core of, at the center of fact checkers focus and for the, and the platforms as well. All right, let's leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. 
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Bybars Orsek. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Jacob Schultz, and our producer is Jen Pachihowell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on the podcasting app of your choice. And thanks for listening. <laughs>